Welcome to the Florida Roundup. I'm Danny Rivero in Miami. Hundreds of thousands of Floridians have lost their Medicaid coverage since April. That's when a federal mandate that prohibited states from dropping anyone from Medicaid rolls expired. This protection, which was established at the beginning of the coronavirus pandemic, also kept people continuously enrolled in the federal insurance program without having to reapply for it. As states begin checking everyone's eligibility for Medicaid for the first time in three years, Florida now leads the nation in disenrollments. WLRN's health, health reporter, Veronica Saragovia, has been following this closely and she joins us now. And also joining us is Dan Chang for KFF Health News, who, and he covers Florida and the South for that outlet. Veronica, Dan, thanks for coming on. Thank you for having us. Thanks, Danny. I'm happy to be here. Thank you both for joining us. Um, we also want to hear from you, our listeners on this. Have you recently lost coverage? Did you receive a notification that you might be losing Medicaid coverage? Are you a healthcare worker? You can give us a call from anywhere in the state at 305-995-1800. And you can also tweet us at Florida Roundup. So, Veronica, let's start with you. Um, this mass purge of people being removed from Medicaid rolls, it's, it's happening nationwide. Um, how is it happening here in Florida, which is now the leading state in people being disenrolled? That's right. Of the more than 1 million people across the country, Florida has by now dropped more than 300,000. And though they had identified close to a million people who no longer qualified that they needed to disenroll. And they were going to wait first have, say, the people who hadn't used their Medicaid in a year or people who simply didn't qualify, say, because they had aged out or because of their income, they were going to take them out. But then they just really grouped everybody, even people with disabilities and sick children, and they've all so many people have been dropped and about 80% of them still qualify. The Department of Children and Families in Florida, which handles Medicaid eligibility, the plan was to send out letters. If you received a letter with a yellow stripe, that meant that you needed to um, confirm that you were still eligible, submit paperwork. They say they texted people, emailed, called, but a lot of people say they didn't receive anything and then, or they'll try to log on and they get these generic messages and they just can't seem to communicate and get the department what they're supposed to do. So it's been very frustrating. And, and a lot of people are being dropped. Yes. And so they're being dropped. And, and you know, something I want to put my finger on is, is because the you know, part of this is federal policy that was in effect for three years since the beginning of the COVID-19 pandemic, which banned states from removing people from Medicaid rules. Um, so there is somewhat of a backlog, I would imagine, of people that would have been pushed off of Medicaid. But can, can you help us understand how much of this surge in Florida is because of federal policy and that federal um, policy running out, and how much of it is actually Florida policies? Well, that's a great question. I know, like, during the pandemic, it swelled from, I believe it was somewhere around 3 million to somewhere over 5 million people in Florida. And, and it is, it takes up a lot of the, the state budget, and if people don't qualify, Florida has very strict qualification. It's very difficult. In fact, like, you almost have to you're, you have to be extremely low income. Um, you have to have either a child with a disability or be disabled or be a caretaker of a disabled person. You, if you're blind, if you are pregnant, you, you will qualify. Um, but certainly having, you know, they kept people continuously enrolled for those three years. And perhaps I, I don't know if that had something to do. I mean, I know all of the health policy analysts I speak to say that the Department of Children and Families really are trying to help, and they're but they're understaffed and overworked, and part of it is a bureaucratic problem. And I will say from a, my personal experience as a reporter, they have been trying very much so to help with information, which is not always the case. No, no, it's, it's a big lift. Oh, sorry, yeah. I, I, I just want to jump in there that it, it's, it's probably the biggest undertaking that uh, that that Florida's uh, uh, DCF, which 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 um, 
determines eligibility for Medicaid has undertaken in recent years. And, and it did grow from about three and a half million Floridians on Medicaid before the pandemic to over five million. I want to say maybe about 5.2 million uh, over those those three years. So, and initially, ACA had uh, had said that they had already predetermined. And ACA, ACA is the, the oh, I'm the sorry, department ACA is that, the that agency, that right? Correct. They're the agency for healthcare administration. They manage and administer the state's Medicaid program. They had estimated before this unwinding began that about 900,000 people had already been identified as no longer eligible. And I think part of the problem here is that uh, a good number of the people or a good share of the people who are being dropped are being dropped because they're not responding to these letters uh, or, or DCF's outreach to try to redetermine their eligibility. So, uh, so, they, so. so they, they're still eligible, but they're not, they haven't responded I, in some way or another. Um, I, I, I do want to go to the phones. We have a call coming in. You can call us at 305-995-1800. We have Wes calling from Tampa. Wes, thanks for calling the Florida Roundup. You're on. Are you, are you, are you there, Wes? Um, we'll 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 continue on here. Um, Dan, um, just following up on, you know, what we were what we were talking about here. How mm -hmm. do how do Florida's rules for being eligible for Medicaid compare to other states? Like, where do we stack up? Well, I think we're we're close to the bottom because, as Veronica mentioned, it's so restrictive in terms of the eligibility. Uh, you just uh, single adults without any dependent children are categorically exempt. They they can't get it no matter how poor they are. And if you're a parent uh, of a child, say you're you're a single parent with one child, you can only qualify if you make up to about thirty five percent of federal poverty level. And I'm sorry, I didn't uh, get those numbers uh, uh, beforehand, but it's extremely low. I want to say about $8,000 a year uh, in order for the parent to qualify. The kids can qualify if their family earns up to about 250% of federal poverty. So it's more generous for kids, as as all state Medicaid programs are. It's it's for the adults, the low-income adults who don't have any other form of coverage that, that this is really, uh, Florida's policies really impact uh, people's ability to get covered. And, and, and Dan, um... Florida is one of 10 states that has not adopted a Medicaid expansion. And this, if Florida did expand it, it would make nearly all low-income adults eligible for coverage. So on, on some level, this is a decision that's been made by by politicians in Florida. And, and, and you've reported on how this gap in coverage has led to fraudulent behavior targeting unhoused people in particular. Um, can you tell us a little bit more about what you found in that in that reporting? Yeah, so in, in as you mentioned, uh, in the, the other 40 states plus the District of Columbia, uh, low-income people, including homeless, can qualify for Medicaid. Uh, and so what happens in states like Florida that don't have Medicaid expansion, except for Wisconsin, and I can explain that later, but what happens is that um, uh, uh, they're they're uninsured if you're low income, and many of the people who are homeless in Florida are being approached by uh, agents and brokers who are signing them up uh, uh, fraudulently because they don't uh, they, they don't earn the income that you need to earn in order to qualify. Um, and and the reason that they're doing this is because there are lots of plans under the uh, the American Rescue Plan Act and then later the Inflation Reduction Act. Uh, the, 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 the subsidies that the federal government provides to people who qualify based on their income have been much more generous. So there are a lot of zero premium plans available in Florida where you don't have to pay anything per month. But the trouble is, is that when you go to use it, there may be co-payments or deductible other out-of-pocket costs that you can't afford, especially if you're homeless. So what's happening here is that uh, most of the companies who sell uh, insurance on the Affordable Care Act exchange pay their agents or brokers or web brokers a, a commission of, of about 20 to $30, according to the state's uh, insurance broker uh, association, and it's per member per month. So uh, what's happening here is that uh, they're signing people up who are homeless for uh, these zero premium plans. Oftentimes, these individuals don't even know that they're They've signed up. They're being offered cash to to do it, small sums, from what I understand, uh, five to ten dollars. And uh, 
you know, the, the people who are homeless are getting hurt. I think a lot of people might see this as, oh, it's not such a big deal. You're insuring uninsured people. The problem is that people who are homeless may qualify for other programs that are much more suitable for them because they don't have any out-of-pocket costs. Right. So, for instance, you know, the Ryan White program for people with HIV, hospital charity care programs. Uh, but and, but and, part, part of what you're you're describing is just the the increase in federal funding coming down is making a lot more people eligible because there's no money down in a way. So some parties out there are taking advantage of this by, you know, by registering people and, you know, there's, 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 yeah, exactly. And there's business models being built up around this. Uh, I, I look, I'm, I'm not sure about business models, but I do know that, uh, uh, enrollment counselors and uh, enrollment navigators and, and also, uh, the state's department of financial services and the center for Medicaid and, and Medicare and Medicaid services, which is the federal regulator that uh, oversees the marketplace have all said that there is a large amount of, um, well, I guess you could say fraud going on. These are, these are people who are. Uh, being signed up or perhaps signing up themselves without providing accurate or correct information. Right. And in some cases, they may not know it. So, uh, you know, the, 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 the enrollment counselors in, in Pinellas and Hillsborough County told me they're seeing the same thing. Doctors at Jackson Memorial in Miami told me that it's become a big problem. And, and it's gotten worse lately. This has been going on really for a very long time, even, you know, since the first days of Marketplace in 2013 and 2014. Right. Uh, it was a story out of and, North Carolina. And ju- yeah. just, just to clarify, when I, when I said business model, it's unscrupulous business model. Correct. <laughs> uh, right. um, I want to go to the phones now. That's 305-995-1800. You can call us. Um, Stephanie calling from Palm Harbor. Thanks for calling. You're on. Hi. Good morning. Um, I just wanted to say something about the insurance industry. I um, was a Medicaid nurse for uh, a very large insurance company for 10 years. Um, when Medicaid was going to be cut, and like you said, they, they do recruit uh, people into the plans. I do agree with that. I used to work on a floor with a bunch of them. And uh, so... But the sad part of what's going on right now is uh, the last job I had there I did for four years, and I was an appeals nurse. And sometimes you would get the most heartbreaking, I mean, letters. These people really have disabilities, and they're losing their Medicaid at the end of the month. They can't get the appliances, things done in their home that they need. And it was my job to help them, so I would have to relook at their case and recommend to the doctor, right. you know, how I felt about it. Th- th- it's just very sad that a lot of people did lose their Medicaid now. Right. Th- thank you so much for the for the call, Stephanie, really echoing some of the reporting and things that we've heard. Um, I do have one other call coming in now. Tanya coming calling from Inverness. Tanya, thanks for calling. Hi. Please, please go ahead. Okay, so I'm one of those who received a text. I don't, I didn't receive um, mail that told me about my pending whether or not I was qualified. So I went online, and it said that my family qualified until December of 2023. So I don't know if that means I was originally qualified until December 2023 and that I'll be kicked off as soon as they start, you know, kicking people off or, you know, I'm disabled by social security standards and I've been receiving Medicaid, but I'm confused and worried. Thank thank you for the call, Tanya. Um, Veronica, I want to I want to put that to you. Yeah, for Tanya, I have seen so in my reporting, and I will put this out there because she's an amazing resource. Uh, Vanessa Brito, you can find her on Facebook um, or or on on Twitter. Um, she's a community activist who has been putting out a lot of messages that if they give you a date for when your Medicaid will expire, that you shouldn't read 
um, say go through the redetermination process until 30 days before. But the best thing, Tanya, that you could do is turn to someone like a navigator. Epilepsy Alliance Florida has them uh, or the Florida Health Justice Project. These are all organizations that are experts in this and who can really guide you because um, the best thing to do is to get advice from the experts. Uh, but I will say it's really important that if you've been dropped, that um, the previous caller, Stephanie, mentioned appeals, that you do appeal that nine, within 90 days of finding out because that's how you can get your expenses reimbursed. If you don't appeal within those 90 days, then you're on your own. And we know that families in Florida have a lot of medical expenses. And Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. And thank you again for, for calling so much, Tanya. Yeah, thank you. Um, Veronica, I, I do want to just follow up. Um, is, is the federal government doing anything? Do they have any involvement in helping people regain Medicaid coverage or other forms of coverage as, as a lot of people are getting dropped? So far, all they've done is to send a letter to governors across the country urging for states to take a one-month pause and figure out what's going on, because like we said, 80% of the people in Florida dropped were actually still qualified. So something's wrong, you know, so what what can be done to get these people? Is, it a, is it a paperwork problem, and it's essentially? Three, yes, uh, let's say three out of four people, it's a paperwork problem. And so they're saying, but and I reached out to the, to the Department of Children and Families, and they haven't responded whether Florida will consider any kind of pause. The analysts tell me that's not likely, but that's all they've done, nothing with real teeth. I will say that Oregon is a state that recently got so the federal government can approve changes that a state will make to its Medicaid program and Oregon recently got approval from the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services to keep children who qualify at birth for Medicaid because of their parents income enrolled continuously for six years so that's for instance something that states can take initiatives to do that maybe the federal government's not leading the way but um, could be a model for other states to follow Thank you. And I, I want to go to one more I, call oh, from this segment quickly. Um, Wesley calling from, from St. Lucie Village. Um, thanks for calling. You're on. Are you on, Wesley? We'll move on. Dan, you were about to say something. In terms of the federal government's role, you know, uh, what what the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, the, the, uh, the insurance regulator, for the marketplace has done, but the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, by the way, also works in partnership with the states to run their Medicaid programs. So the federal government has provided about a dozen waivers that would allow states to um, to keep people on longer. So for instance, they're saying that you can use uh, SNAP eligibility perhaps to keep people on. Uh, that's the uh, Supplemental Nutritional Assistance Program. Food stamps. Uh, right, correct. Right. And, and there are other waivers that states could 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 um, could could use to to make it easier and to keep people on their uh, on their roles longer. There are only two states that haven't applied to get any of those waivers, and one of those is Florida. The other one's Montana. Every other state in the nation has used at least one of these waivers to help with their unwinding challenges. I think that's worth noting. Yeah. Right. So I mean, just just to reiterate, um, there's a lot at play here, but. At least part of it is policies that are coming from the state of Florida. Right. Um, yes. I, I do want to thank our two guests very much for coming on. We um, Veronica Saragovia covers healthcare and many other things for, <laughs> for, for us here in WLRN News in, in Miami. Dan Chang covers Florida and the South for KFF Health News. Dan, Veronica, thanks so much for coming on. Thank you so much, Danny. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. Still coming up on the Florida Roundup, more talk about Medicaid, if you believe it or not. Florida's ban on Medicaid coverage for gender-affirming care gets struck down in federal court. More on that ruling just ahead. Hurricanes, lightning, flooding, and tornadoes affect the entire state of Florida. And the team of meteorologists from the Florida Public Radio Emergency Network keep you informed around the clock. All year long, we're committed to providing in-depth weather coverage, both over the radio and on the mobile app Florida Storms. The Florida Public Radio Emergency Network is supported by this station and Citizens Property Insurance, online at citizensfla.com. 
An experienced diver says the five men who went missing in the Atlantic aboard a small submersible likely died quickly. They died in two nanoseconds, so they instantly had no idea what happened. That is the best news I've heard in four days. God have mercy on their souls. That's coming up on Today Explained. Tonight at 6.30 on WJCT News 89.9. President Joe Biden is 80 years old, and he'll soon ask the American people for four more years in office. For a lot of people, I think it's a bit unnerving to have an elderly person in that job. How both Republican and Democratic strategists view President Biden's age and how voters might assess his abilities. That's next time on Think. Tonight at 10 on WJCT News 89.9. Welcome back to the Florida Roundup. I'm Danny Rivero in Miami. This week, a federal judge blocked Florida's ban on Medicaid coverage for gender affirming care. The ruling isn't a complete surprise out of left field. It comes just two weeks after that same U.S. district judge issued a preliminary injunction on Florida's law prohibiting such care for minors. But it is significant. Thousands of transgender people in the state are estimated to use Medicaid to fund their treatments. And there's a growing list of court rulings that have been struck down in similar bans or restrictions in other states like in Indiana and Arkansas just very recently. For more on this ruling this week, we're joined by two reporters, Gary Finout with Politico and Catherine Varn with Axios. Gary, Catherine, thanks for calling. Thanks for, for joining us here. Thanks for having us. Yep, thank you. And I want our audience to remember that we are taking your calls. You can call us at 305-995-1800. That's 305-995-1800. And you can always tweet us at Florida Roundup. Gary, before we get into talking about the opinion itself, can you give us a little bit of background on this case and where it came from? Um, And, you know, do we know anything about the plaintiff? Uh, well, there are four. There are four uh, on the Medicaid case. There are four plaintiffs. There are two transgender adults and two transgender minors, uh, who were basically um, involved in taking uh, different uh, types of treatment, either puberty blockers or cross-sex hormones. And you know, the the sort of the genesis of this case started last year um, when basically the DeSantis administration. Uh, began advocating uh, for uh, prohibitions on the treatment and everything like that. Um, and, and what happened was uh, the the Medicaid rule went into effect. There was also the medical boards in the state also enacted uh, rules dealing with uh, applying to physicians. And so that all started rolling last year. And so the first lawsuit that was filed in connection with this was in fact on the Medicaid rule. And that is the first one that went to trial. And that's why we we got the ruling. The other case that you cited, which has to do with the medical board rules and a subsequent law passed by the legislature has a little bit that isn't quite as far. And and in fact, the ruling in that case only applied to the three people who filed the lawsuit. And, and they got a preliminary injunction. Well, whereas this ruling that came out of Medicaid is one that follows a full-blown trial. Right. And and can, can you tell us, like, just what was in that opinion written by District Court Judge um, Robert Hinkle? What 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 does the opinion actually say about its decision to block this? Well, the, law? What's, well what Judge Hinkle did is he basically took some of the facts and testimony that was heard in the tr- the trial on the Medicaid ban uh, and used the same language that he had put in the preliminary injunction two weeks ago on the, the ban on minors. He kind of used a lot of the same phraseology, a lot of the same language where he talked about how uh, it, it, that uh, gender identity is real. And then he went over the testimony and evidence that was put in place by the state and basically, the bottom line is that Judge Hinkle concluded that the rule in place of farming and dealing with Medicaid was discriminatory, 
discriminatory in nature, that it violated equal protection clause, and that it also uh, that it violated Medicaid laws and the Affordable Care Act. And he put all those together and said this this rule and and which was also codified this spring by the legislature that it is not valid and it should not go forward. Right. And then now, so the question is, what will the state do? Will they appeal it? Uh, they haven't necessarily said that yet. Um, uh, they, so that's where we're at. Th- thank you for that. I, I want to bring Catherine Varn in with, with Axios. Catherine, um, I mean, what, just one thing to note is that this decision this week in, in North Florida, it follows federal judges in Arkansas and Indiana that have struck down parts of similar laws in those states. Um, just to help give us kind of the the overarching view and context here. I mean, do, do do these three rulings tell us anything about where all these laws stand? I mean, these laws have been absolutely a priority of Republican state governments over the last year or so, and just now we're getting rulings on them. Sure, yeah. I mean, I think it it, uh, you know, is showing that the courts um, don't, you know, don't have a, a high tolerance for for these laws and rules. Um, you know, it's important to note that gender affirming health care uh, for uh, minors and adults is affirmed and supported by every major medical association in the country. And there's a lot of uh, science to back it up, um, which is not, which Florida has has contradicted and said, no, there isn't enough evidence to to, uh, back up the uh, value of this care. Uh, But, you know, it seems like the courts are, are, you know, taking a different stance and saying, no, there is science to support this care. The, you know, the mainstream medical establishment uh, supports this care. So, you know, these laws are discriminatory. So um, it doesn't, you know, it doesn't seem to fare well for the, uh, you know, the Republican strategy in this area. Um, I I mean, the state could certainly appeal. uh, And uh, like Gary said, um, uh, the state hasn't said whether they're going to yet, but, and, and the uh, 11th uh, Circuit of Appeals in Atlanta is, is more conservative um, and has been known to reverse uh, decisions by the uh, uh, D- Northern District Court in Florida. So um, it could be overturned um, if they appeal. Um, I'm not sure about the makeup of appellate courts in other areas, but, um, you know, similar, you know, any of these other decisions can be appealed as well. But I mean, at least for now, it's not looking like the courts are going to to back up these laws. And and Catherine, can you help us just understand where do the rest of Florida's restrictions around this gender affirming care stand after this ruling? Yeah, so um, the Gary mentioned the um, temporary injunction that was issued regarding the uh, uh, restrictions for transgender minors um, seeking gender affirming care. And that injunction applies, I mean, it's kind of gotten different interpretations. According to the plaintiff's attorney, that injunction should apply to all minors who want to get gender affirming care. But according to the DeSantis administration, it applies only to the three minors who were who who requested the injunction. Um, So there's some question of how broadly um, or whether or not the state of Florida is going to enforce uh, the child restrictions for other children who try to seek gender affirming care who weren't party to that lawsuit. Uh, and then uh, there are also adult restrictions in place uh, as part of the same uh, bill, Senate Bill 254, that codified the, the restrictions for, for trans minors. And basically the adult restrictions involve like a pretty bulky informed consent process um, that actually the Florida Board of Medicine is tasked with sort of, you know, figuring out the details for, and they actually have a meeting this afternoon um, where they have uh, proposed a a draft uh, informed consent form uh, for adults and uh, for adults seeking gender affirming care. So we'll kind of know more about those exact requirements um, as that process goes forward. But what was laid out in the law was at least that to, to start 
gender hormones or, or, uh, well, to start hormones, mainly for adults, they wouldn't be on puberty blockers, but to start hormones, um, you would have to see a physician in person. So that, you know, gets rid of telehealth as an option, gets rid of, you know, being able to see a nurse practitioner or a physician's assistant. Um, so those are definitely two requirements laid out in the law. And then the Florida board of medicine may, uh, you know, have more after this, uh, rulemaking process for the informed consent forms. Thank you. And I, I want to give our number again for our, for our listeners. It's 305-995-1800. You can give us a call here on the Florida Roundup. Gary, I, I want to go back to you. You mentioned that there has been no official appeal uh, made of this decision. Um, but, but I am wondering, have there been any rhetorical responses from the governor or other lawmakers in Florida in response to this, to this ruling? Uh I, I haven't seen anything in regards to the Medicaid ruling, which only came out about a day and a half ago. Uh, I mean, yes, there was a strong response to the initial, the uh, preliminary injunction that was filed. The DeSantis administration and other people who supported the ban were, were quite vocally uh, upset and called uh, Judge Hinkle an activist judge. And and so I, I believe would it would it would make perfect sense that they plan to um, appeal. Now, I would say the important thing, and I don't want to get too far in the weeds, is is the um, the decision on the minor ban, as as noted, was a preliminary injunction. It's before the case has actually even kind of gotten underway. Um, so I think the decision is there's a whole legal decision as to whether or not you want to press and challenge the preliminary injunction right away, or if you want to go ahead with the regular the court case. So that all has to be worked out. And and what I would tell you is the the, the thing about the preliminary injunction um, uh, to the point that Catherine was making is that uh, if you read the ruling, uh, it does specifically say the three plaintiffs. Uh, I right, think the right. issue that, is that it only applies to those three minor, but, minor but, plaintiffs. But, right. But to Catherine's point, if you are someone else and you know that that ruling is out there and you are denied treatment, then you could go into court and and ask for the same uh, standing that the other people got. And in other lawsuits of this sort, I want to use one in particular, the, the lawsuit over cruises, the Santos administration had and all of that kind of stuff. They have taken decisions where they've said, well, that only applied to Norwegian, but we're going to apply it to everybody until it's all litigated. So I think that's the issue. The issue is, are you going to go ahead and just say, well, as, as, as instead of getting other lawsuits all at, jamming up the system, do we just go ahead and say for now, we're just going to fight the battle in court and we're not going to deal with the injunction? Right. And and I mean, politically, from what you see, is this something that that could move the needle? I mean, some and I, and I ask it because these policies have really been a rallying point for the the Republican Party over the last year or so. Does getting well, shot down in court, I mean, do you foresee that having any impact in, on this politically? No, no, not at all. I mean, I think I think there I mean, Governor DeSantis uh, talks about these policies uh, frequently uh, at, at, at various stops. Uh, he did on his reelection campaign and he is doing it on his presidential campaign. So I, I would think that at this point in time, that from a political standpoint, they are not planning uh to back down. You're listening to the Florida Roundup from Florida Public Radio. Catherine, I, I want to I want to bring you back into this. Um, where, like, wh what are you watching? Because there's so much going on here with with access to transgender care. Um, you know, besides the these lawsuits that are that are winding their way through the courts, are you watching any other part of this? unfold in the, in the, the real world impact say? Yeah, definitely. Um, I, I, I'll be keeping an eye on the, the Florida board of medicine meeting today, um, to Gary's point, uh, you know, that, that, you know, will this have an impact, you know, on the political landscape, you know, probably not. Um, you know, it doesn't, the, based on what the, um, Florida board of medicine has proposed for the informed consent process for adults, um, they, 
you know, put some stuff in here, like, uh, you know, you have to go through um, a psychiatric evaluation and, and a suicide risk assessment every three months, um, you know, bone, bone scans once a year, um, a bunch of, a bunch of requirements, um, to undergo that treatment and, uh, and trans people and ally and their allies, um, have pointed out that these are really, really strict and, um, strict requirements and, and, and put up a lot of barriers to care, um, uh, Representative Ann Askamani, a uh, Democrat from Orlando, uh, sent a letter to the board, um, you know, uh, critiquing uh, what they what they've put out. So uh, it definitely seems like, you know, they're continuing to to put some pretty tough restrictions um, by them. I mean, the state, the state is continuing to put pretty uh, tough restrictions around care. So I'll be keeping an eye on that process. Um, I've also heard um, kind of anecdotally of, of people, um, you know, uh, adults who, who have prescriptions for hormones, but have gone to pharmacies and not been able to get their prescriptions filled. Um, the, the main example I saw got worked out through the, the through the pharmacy company. Um, so it, it turned out fine, but I, I'm certainly keeping an eye on, on that. Like if, if, uh, if trans adults uh, are struggling to get their uh, prescriptions filled or struggling to get care period. Um, so definitely keeping an eye on, on the adult provisions for sure. I think those have gotten a lot less attention than uh, than the child, the, the transgender minors um, restrictions and, and they're both super important and I'm keeping an eye on both, but um, we're still sort of seeing how a lot of the adult restrictions are gonna play out. Uh, they've only been in effect for Gosh. Um, yeah, not money. not not too long. And I, I, yeah. I did see this week um, an executive of GoFundMe actually came public saying we're seeing a ton of GoFundMe pages with transgender people trying to fundraise to get out of Florida. So that's something I've been watching. Uh, um, I, 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 I do want to go to the phones. It's 305-995-1800. We have Stephanie calling from Jacksonville. Stephanie, thanks for calling the Florida Roundup. You're on. Hi, sure. Thank you for taking my call. You know, as I think about just any state's budget, certainly there's a finite amount of money that could be spent on important uh, things and social programs. And of course, the three largest line items are always prisons, education, and Medicaid. And there is a finite amount of money. And I think about um, the population and the percent of the population that this is representing like I, I don't even know if we know what percent of the state of florida are we talking about with respect to gender affirming and and then prioritizing that in taxpayer dollars and i'm i think about women and those who are menopausal and who cannot get coverage for hormone replacement therapy and i would venture to say and i don't know factually but that that population is much much larger than those seeking gender-affirming uh, coverage and benefits through the Medicaid program. And so it, it just concerns me that we're rallying behind a very small group or population potentially of the state relative to other populations. Thank, thank you. Um, yeah. Th thank you for your call, Stephanie. Um, and transgender individuals are about 1%. It is relatively small, but... American Medical Association, other groups do take the position that those groups are deserving of health care and they consider this health care. Um, we do have to leave the conversation there now. I want to say thanks to our guests, Gary Finout with Politico and Catherine Varn with Axios. Thank you both so much for calling. And just ahead on the Florida Roundup, how far is Florida going to protect its environmentally sensitive lands? AI chatbot for lawyers that can read and analyze hundreds of documents in minutes, that should cut down on billable hours, right? You know, when we got computerized, everybody said it would reduce bills. <laughs> Didn't work. And I'm pretty sure this one isn't going to work either. I'm Kai Rizdal. What legal AI will and won't change about the business of law? That's next time on Marketplace. Tonight at 6, here on WJCT News 89.9. 
Chemistry is Kelly Clarkson's first album since her divorce, and she hopes it might help others experiencing heartbreak. It's like, okay, I went through something that, like, maybe other people, maybe this will make them feel less alone, you know, when they're crying on their floor and their world is a dumpster fire, you know? I'm Juana Summers, my candid conversation with Kelly Clarkson on All Things Considered from NPR News. Starting at 4 on WJCT News 89.9. On the next Fresh Air, we remember former military analyst and activist Daniel Ellsberg, who died last week at the age of 92. He made history in 1971 by leaking the secret study of the Vietnam War known as the Pentagon Papers. And he was still leaking classified material and challenging government secrecy at the age of 90. Join us. Today at 1 on WJCT News 89.9. Welcome back to the Florida Roundup. I'm Danny Rivero in Miami. Governor Ron DeSantis has boasted record environmental spending in the recently signed state budget for the upcoming fiscal year. And that budget includes $850 million for wildlife corridors in the state and $100 million in recurring funding for the Florida Forever Land Protection Program. But the governor also vetoed $100 million from another conservation program one aimed at keeping swaths of rural lands from being developed. From WUSF News in Tampa, Steve Newborn joins us now to discuss these wildlife corridors in Florida. Steve, thanks for, for coming on. Are you there, Steve? <laughs> we want it, We do want to hear from you on this on this show. We have the, the number, it's 305-995-1800. That's 305-995-1800. And you can also tweet us at Florida Roundup. Can you hear me now, Danny? I can hear you now. You are here. <laughs> Th- thanks for coming on, Steve. Um, so let's let's get into it. So earlier this year, Governor Ron DeSantis and the Florida cabinet voted to spend around $100 million to help protect the Florida Wildlife Corridor. And that's on top of the hundreds of millions of dollars for other wildlife corridor projects. Can you tell us a little bit more about how this money will be spent and why it's so important? So the the lion's share of this money, the $800 million, is is going to be uh, used to purchase areas between the Osceola and Ocala National Forest. This is an area in North Florida that's part of the wildlife corridor. But the annual amount they agreed to, like you said, was $100 million. This goes into what's called the Land Acquisition Trust Fund. This is the map, so to speak, of what lands are being targeted for preservation. I just want to mention here that there were bills this year to spend up to $300 million for the program, but uh, those bills never made it out of committee in Tallahassee. So there are basically two ways state lands can be preserved. It can be bought outright, like a state park or forest, or it can be doled out for what are called conservation easements. These are aimed at keeping uh, ranches and farms from future development. It's called the Rural and Family Lands Protection Program. Mm-hmm. And that basically allows these ranchers and farmers to continue ranching and farming with restrictions that keep the land from future development. And, and Steve, just for the listener's sake, um, because not everyone has had a chance to look at or visit the Florida Wildlife Corridor, I mean, can you paint... A picture or a map for us of exactly the scale and the place that this Florida wildlife corridor is like what are the general boundaries of it because it's it's really massive it, it is massive so uh, you know basically the corridor is two paths through the state it, it starts in the south at the Everglades and kind of goes northward through uh, Florida Panther country in southwest Florida and up the uh, the Lake Wells Ridge, which is the sandy spine in the middle of the state. Now, from there, it splits into two paths. In the east, it skirts around Orlando's metro area, kind of hugging the Atlantic coast, and goes north through the Ocala and Osceola National Forest, which I just mentioned, all the way up to the, the Georgia border. Now, the other path starts at that Lake Wells Ridge and kind of hangs a left. It goes north through the Green Swamp, which is between Tampa and Orlando, and goes up through the Nature Coast along the Gulf Coast. And it continues northwest and through forests and military reservations throughout the length of the Panhandle, all the way up to the Alabama border. So it's a continuous 
two paths. And and the a main reason for this corridor being proposed and now, you know, it's being constructed, well, constructed is maybe not the right word, but it's being built um, was because of the shrinking habitat for the Florida panther, um, especially because cars are the number one cause of death for that endangered species. So the the idea has long been creating corridors where panthers can can roam. Um, has the reasoning expanded beyond only protecting panthers at this point? Well, the whole impetus for the corridor started with a bear. Um, a guy by the name of Joe Guthrie, he's a bear biologist, he was, he was on one of the first Florida wildlife corridor, ex, corridor expedition treks. And he, when he worked at Archbold, this is a, a nature preserve in central Florida, he tracked a bear and it kept going north but kept bumping up against I-4 and kept coming back and trying to get, get across it. And it finally just turned around and went back home trying to find a mate. And so the idea for this was to you know, create a pathway so this wouldn't happen, maybe underpasses under I-4, but basically to connect these shrinking areas of natural preserved land. And it's not just good for panthers and bears. It's for every animal out there. You know, uh, the, the state basically adds a 1,000 people every day. You know, they've got to live somewhere, and all these new developments being built are bumping up against places where wildlife have called their home forever, right? So, and they're a lot of them getting kicked out of their homes. So the idea is to have a pathway for them to migrate and to continue breeding without becoming inbred. Right, and... and- I mean, this this really has been become a bipartisan across the board thing. Like, there's not really anyone that is opposed to this, is there? Yeah, I think the politicians have figured out that there's a, an economic incentive to preserve all this. You know, the biggest we're the biggest tourist attraction in the country, and a lot of tourists visit the state for its natural beauty. I mean, they go deep sea fishing, they go camping. You know, even birding is a multi million dollar industry here. And, you know, we got to keep these people coming here. And plus, the people who already live here want a place to unwind from it all. So this is kind of a way of preserving the goose that laid the golden egg, if I could use a bad pun. Right. You're listening to the Florida Roundup from Florida Public Radio. So, Steve, I I do want to ask, Florida's Commissioner of Agriculture, Wilton Simpson, who is a Republican, said that when Governor DeSantis vetoed $100 million from another conservation program just last week, that, quote, agriculture was harmed today and so was the state of Florida. Um, Can you tell us a little bit about that conversation, that that conversion, I'm sorry, (laughs) conservation program and how it fits into this overall picture of, of wildlife corridors? Like, why is that so important? Yeah, this this is one of the biggest deals. Uh, what you're referring to is the Rural and Family Lands Protection Program, which took the hit from the governor's veto there. And now, Wilton Simpson, who was Senate president last year, he raises chickens in Pasco County. This is what he does for a living. So this is something that's near and dear to him. Um, so what happened was this money, basically the governor said, we already have $300 million dollars left over from last year in the current budget for all this land acquisition and conservation. So it'll last into next fiscal year. Um, And and this is probably one of the biggest items in land preservation. It isn't purchasing land. It's connecting with the ranchers and the farmers who already live there. And their lands are preserved for the most part as it is. And they want to have a way to keep the land in working condition so it doesn't get developed. So it basically pays them to con- keep doing what you're doing. Just and, don't sell it for development. And and I, I do want to mention that this conservation program was a priority of Senate President Kathleen Pasadomo. Um, she talked to us here on the Florida Roundup about it in March. Let's we listen. are overdeveloping. We are losing our, our winter vegetables. Florida used to be the winter vegetable capital of the world. Uh, particularly for the eastern seaboard. And as the farmers are cashing out and selling their land to developers because they couldn't afford to farm or there was reasons uh, not to, we're basically concreting from the east coast to the west coast. So, so Steve, I mean, on the one hand, we're talking there is a lot of conservation work going on. Um, other states are looking at what's happening in Florida as a model in a way. 
But on the other hand, Governor DeSantis has vetoed, you know, a priority of the agriculture commissioner of the the Senate president. Um, I mean, what are what are the politics of this aspect? <laughs> well, unfortunately, politics uh, kind of gets in the way of everything. <laughs> I, I think with the rural and family lands program, it was kind of a tug of war between Wilton Simpson when he was the Senate president and and the governor. Um, you know, they they have not been the best of buddies and the best of terms. So a lot of people believe this was a uh, politically motivated veto. But there is um, a lot of good in in looking like a green candidate, right? Um, so many politicians who you wouldn't think would be on the side of conservationists have have joined the green bad wagon. I think it I think it looks good. Uh, you know, the, a lot of most of the people agree with this. They they voted in 2014 to set aside a um, a third of all the uh, the doc stamps, the documentary stamps that are levied on uh, real estate transactions for these programs. Now, the politicians haven't always followed that through, but it shows you there is a wide breadth of support for this in, in the population out here. And Steve, you know, la- last question here. Um, you've actually made the journey along the Florida Wildlife Corridor for someone listening who might not have had the chance to make that kind of trek. Can you can you paint a picture of what you saw along the way? Like what's at stake with these conservation efforts? Yeah, wow. And, you know, in many ways, these were the trips of a, of a lifetime for me. I, I made two trips stopping in occasionally with the, with the three members of the Wildlife Corridor Expedition. Now, the first one was way back in 2012 when no one really knew about the Wildlife Corridor and what it all meant. Um, it was kind of a, a concept for conservationists. So they started at uh, Flamingo at the tip of the Everglades in Florida Bay and kayaked through the sawgrass marshes of the Everglades, hiked and biked through the Lake Wells Ridge north of there, that high sandy spine in the middle of the state, and then kind of skirted around Orlando, went through the uh, the National Forest, the Ocala and Osceola National Forest, and ended up at the Okefenokee Swamp in southern Georgia. These Places that many and people haven't been to. I'm, I'm sorry. I should have asked that question much earlier. We got we we do got to wrap up. I encourage everyone okay. to read and see the pictures that Steve Newborn at WSF has done on that. Steve, thank you so much for coming on and talking with us. My pleasure. I appreciate it. And that'll do it for our program here on the Florida Roundup today. The Florida Roundup is produced by WJCT Public Media in Jacksonville and WLRN Public Media in Miami. Heather Schatz and Bridget O'Brien are the producers. WLRN's vice president of radio and our technical director is Peter Mayers. Engineering help from Doug Peterson, Charles Michaels, and Isabella Da Silva. Richard Ives answers the phones. Our theme music is provided by Miami jazz guitarist Aaron Libos at AaronLibos.com. I'm Danny Rivero. Thanks for listening. We'll catch you next week.